twister at the end, that passage, which uh, Bob mentioned was quite long. So this will uh, admittedly be a survey of this passage, but we're continuing our look together at different passages in the New Testament that set before us who Jesus is and what he has done in grand scale cosmic terms. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we look at this text together. Lord, we consider from this ancient letter the proclamation that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that this is the organizing historical reality that we are summoned to build our lives upon. So help us to do so. And we ask it in his name. While we look at this passage together, I want us to have in our minds two different contrasting approaches to faith that every single one of us can take. And the first one, which is fairly common, fairly popular amongst many, is to view faith as something that we assemble ourselves in order to make meaning out of a chaotic world. Something that is somewhat arbitrary, sort of a collage of rituals and traditions and metaphors and symbolic stories that we are free to embrace or not, so that if we do embrace them, they can provide us with a measure of community with other people who enjoy the same sorts of rituals and traditions. They provide us with festive holidays to celebrate because holidays are fun. They can provide us with certain rites of passage at various stages of life, birth and coming of age and marriage and death, because rites of passage are meaningful to us. And that sort of understanding of faith is arbitrary and is at best sort of benign and harmless, um, but, but it's entirely optional. That is not the sort of faith that is put before us for our consideration in the Bible, and in particular here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which was written by the Apostle Paul. What is given to us here is something more like the start of the first Superman movie. Anybody remember the original Christopher Reeve, 1978? That is the best superhero movie ever made. Sorry, Marvel and DC nowadays, Robert Downey Jr. But early in that uh, original 1978 movie, Marlon Brando, who plays the father of little Kal-El, who's going to become Superman, he's sort of part of this leadership, they're kind of like a Jedi Council almost, on the planet Krypton. And he's trying to warn his fellow Krypton residents that their planet is moving too close to their sun, and it's going to be destroyed. And he says to them in this council meeting, my friends, you know me to be neither rash nor impulsive. I'm not given to wild, unsupported statements. And I tell you that we must evacuate this planet immediately. You cannot ignore these facts. It is suicide. It's worse than that. It is genocide. But because of the human propensity to avoid thinking about unpleasant facts, his fellow council members refuse to listen to him, and they silence him. 
And so he and his wife make this little spaceship to send their child away where he'll be safe, and that's how Superman comes to Earth with his special powers. But no sooner does the little baby fly away than the planet begins to break down and it eventually explodes. In other words, I know that's cheery, isn't it? In other words, what Superman's father is saying is, look, I'm not giving you an optional reality. I am giving you news about the future of this planet. And the stakes are life and death. You need to build your life and your actions around the reality that I'm announcing to you. That is the approach to faith that is given to us in the Bible. Now, fortunately, the news of Jesus Christ is not news about the planet Earth being swallowed by the sun. It's news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking our sins upon himself and then conquering death in his resurrection. There are hard edges to this news, namely the reality of sin and judgments and the need of salvation. But it is good news that those of us who inhabit this world of death can have life because of the resurrection of Jesus. So what we are told in this passage is that the gospel is a story of the world that we have to align our lives with. That is what we are being told here. So I want to look together at a couple of aspects of this story of the world that we need to align ourselves with, just two. And the first, as we've already been asserting, but which we want to state more clearly and show from the passage, is that it is historical. The sort of notion that it could be of tremendous value to practice Christianity as a set of traditions, even if it's false, it doesn't fly with what the Apostle Paul tells us. If you look again in verses 13 and following, he asks the question, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. And he goes on and on and eventually says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's saying is if, the re if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then those of us who celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead are the most pitiable people in the world because we are building our lives upon a falsehood. If it's just a human-made constellation of nice traditions, the Apostle Paul is saying it is utterly worthless. It's worth, worse than worthless. It makes you pitiable. It's not just neutral. Now, it's easy for us to suspect that maybe people like the Apostle Paul and the others who believed in the resurrection of Jesus at this time were just gullible, ancient, superstitious people. But you have to remember that while they did not have smartphones, the people of the ancient world were really familiar with death. And in fact, they probably weren't as good at insulating themselves from the reality of death as we are in the 21st century. They had seen people die for thousands of years. And they had seen that when people die, they stay dead. And there's no reason to expect that they will be raised from the dead. They weren't dumb. They weren't gullible. And they inhabited every bit as pluralistic and multi-religious of a world as we do now. Even the Jews 
the people who Jesus Christ came from, to whom the gospel first went, who did believe in an eventual resurrection of the body, that at the end there would be this resurrection of, of, of God's people and of the world, they did not expect it to happen in the middle of history. This was totally not in their expectations. Because as we look at passages like the one we read earlier from Isaiah 53, which do foretell a suffering servant who will be raised, and which do foretell God's renewal of all things of the cosmos, it sounds from the Old Testament prophets like it's all going to happen all at the same time. It's sort of like when you look out at the night sky, if you get far enough away from the suburbs, then you can actually see stars. And it looks like all the stars are the same distance away. Because you're looking at them from far away. And yet we know that if we were to actually travel towards those stars, some of them would be much farther away than others. But we don't know that just looking with our naked eyes. We know it because scientists have used telescopes and all sorts of calculus that I can't comprehend, and they fold us. And so even the people who were waiting for the resurrection didn't expect it to happen this way. With one resurrection of one man in the middle of history, and then the rest to follow. And yet, something happened. So that all across the Roman Empire, people from all walks of life, Jews and Gentiles, every sort of different kind of person, came to believe that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, from a small town in a Roman colony in the Middle East, had been raised from the dead, and that this was the new organizing fact of history that they ought to build their lives around. This was for a couple of reasons that Paul gives us. First of all, Paul tells us that the resurrection, the death of resurrection of Jesus happened in accordance with the scriptures. If you look back up at verses Two and following, he says, For I delivered to you, meaning I brought the news to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What does he mean when he says in accordance with the scriptures? What the Apostle Paul is explaining is that for thousands of years, the people of Israel had worshipped this particular God who had given them a way of worshipping him that included things like the Day of Atonement, which had this practice of the high priest of Israel going to the temple and having this goat that in a symbolic way the priest of Israel would put his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sins of the people onto the goat's head and then send the goat into the wilderness alone to carry the people's sins away from them. Not only have there been these sorts of symbols and metaphors, but there have been promises, like the one that we read from Isaiah chapter 53, 10 and 11, earlier in the service, about this servant who will come and bear the sins of God's people, even to the point of death, but yet live Afterward, And Isaiah had spoken of this centuries before Jesus came. And yet, using this little rhetorical past tense to speak of something in the future, which is so certain that you can speak of it as though it's already happened. And he says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he, the one who has been crushed, will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, there's going to be an innocent person who comes and takes the iniquities of the guilty upon himself so that they can be counted as righteous even though they're not. And we can go on and on with these sorts of pictures and promises from the Old Testament. And Paul is saying that when Christ died for our sins and he rose again, he brought to fulfillment all that had been foreshadowed and pointed to and announced before him. So that's the a first way that the Apostle Paul wants us to see that this is a true story of the world that we need to align ourselves with. But he goes further to explain that this death and resurrection is according to eyewitness testimony. People saw Jesus Christ stripped, naked, beat, senseless, hung on a cross, and speared, wrapped up in linens covering every inch of his body and buried in a tomb with a gigantic rock put over the edge, which you don't just revive from with a little time. And then afterward, the Apostle Paul says in this passage, he was seen alive, verse 5 and following, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, there are over 500 people who saw him alive. You can go talk to them. I am not making this up. And 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing if we're just mentally ill. That's not what happens. If you meet a person with a mental illness who's hallucinating, their hallucinations are theirs alone. They can't persuade 500 other people to buy into them. So this is, according to the Apostle Paul, according to eyewitness testimony. Since we were together last Sunday, there are a number of news items that all of us are probably mostly familiar with. The Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl with Doug and Park in attendance. The Senate impeachment trial ended. A cruise ship of people in Japan was quarantined because of the coronavirus. The Iowa caucus took place, and the results, I think, came out. And in happier news, in Borneo, a friendly orangutan offered a helping hand to a man who was chest deep in snake-infested water, capturing the hearts of those who saw the news story around the world. What all of these things have in common is that they are facts. They are not symbolic ideas. These are things that have happened. And with the exception of the parks at the Super Bowl, none of us in this room saw them happen. But we don't have any doubts that they have happened. Because we actually do rely on eyewitness testimony to know the most important things that we have to know. If you consider the friendly Atlantic time one of the most important things that we have to know. It was a nice break in the news cycle this week. So this is eyewitness testimony according to scripture. So secondly, that's all about the historicity, the historical nature of the gospel. Second aspect of it that the Apostle Paul wants to give us here a bit more briefly 
is that it is only the beginning. That is the resurrection of Christ. Paul has told us that the resurrection of Jesus is historical. It's in fulfillment of hundreds of years, of centuries, thousands, actually, of prophecy, of promises. And it is only the beginning. It's not the end. If you look again at verse 20, the Apostle Paul first uses an agricultural metaphor to explain this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Anybody here raised on a farm? Rebecca, perhaps, or at least near farmers. I guess Dan technically works on a farm. Isn't Chicago Ag technically the last farm in Chicago? Well, for those of us who have not lived off the land, you have to put yourself, you have to put ourselves into the shoes of people who lived in an agricultural society who depended on a harvest that they could not control in order to not starve or at least experience great hardship. So every year you're waiting for what Paul refers to as the first fruits, the first of the crop to spring up. And when the first fruits sprung up, there was celebration. Not simply because the first fruits themselves would be useful, but because the first fruits would enable you to anticipate the full fruitfulness that was yet to come. The full abundance that was yet to come. In the story of the Bible, God creates humanity to know him and to love him and to walk with him. We turn our backs and usher in spiritual and physical death upon ourselves. But that is not the end of the story. And that is why the Apostle Paul gives us this second explanation for why Jesus is only the beginning. He's, he's the new Adam, the last Adam, in verses 21 to 23. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Soon it's going to be springtime. And every year when spring gets closer, the very first flower that springs up is the crocus. And I am not super knowledgeable about plants and flowers, but I've learned to be able to recognize, first, lilies, because they're my wife's favorite. But secondly, the crocus, because it's the first thing to spring up. And they're fairly simple. But when I see one, I know this is just the start. Finally, spring is coming. That's what the Apostle Paul wants us to feel like when we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus. This is only the start. Because he was the beginning of a new humanity, a do-over. And when you are united to him in faith, you have eternal resurrection life to look forward to. We could also go to other places in scripture which we don't have time to, places like Romans 6 and Romans 8 and Colossians 3, where we're told that the power of Christ's resur resurrection life is in us even now, enabling us to know him and to serve him. As a, as a foretaste of what is to come. And then finally, the Apostle Paul shows us that the resurrection of Jesus is only the beginning because of all this lofty language he throws at us at the end about how Jesus is already reigning as king, but how all things will be brought in subjection under him. 
and all of his enemies will be put beneath his feet. And we won't reread all of these verses, but just to look at a few of them, in verse 24, Paul says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. For the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But it will be destroyed. We are given a vision of a time when every single enemy, including death itself, is destroyed. Every oppressor, every coronavirus, every affliction among God's people is put in subjection to Jesus. There's a wonderful scene, and many of you are familiar with it, and it's been quoted, at least the book has, in many a sermon, but in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the world of Narnia has been under a spell by the white witch who's made it always winter and never Christmas. But once the lion has come, who is the sort of Christ figure of the book, the ice and the snow begin to melt. And it doesn't happen all at once. But at one point in the story, the melting is becoming, getting to the point where blades of grass are starting to poke up, and water, the sound of water running is beginning to be heard, and the dwarf, who is the little kind of henchman of the queen, says, this is no thaw, this is spring. Even though spring is not yet fully arrived. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, this wasn't simply a wonderful thing that happened. This was spring. And so what I want this to mean for you, brothers and sisters, well, you are in this season together of prayer, of pretty considerable and, and thoughtful and intentional prayer in various settings. That is what I want to apply this teaching about the reality of the resurrection to. Namely, I want to urge you to pray as though it is spring. I want to urge you to pray as though you believe that the resurrection is true. As though you believe that Jesus Christ is on his throne and his resurrection power exists in you and in the world and that one day all things will be put in subjection to his feet. It's like praying that the rest of the snow will melt while you can already hear the water running and see the icicles dripping off the siding of your house. Knowing that there is more melt to take place, but that it will happen. There's a story in the book of Acts that illustrates this really dramatically and beautifully. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been arrested and experienced a dramatic release because of their preaching about Jesus and the jealousy of the religious rulers who don't want some rivals springing up. And when they are released and they go back to their brothers and sisters and rejoin them, they gather to pray knowing that they're going to need God's help to have the courage to keep going amidst this opposition and threat of persecution. And we're told in Acts 4, verses 23 and following, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together in God and said to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Give us your attention. I know we're near the end. Listen to how they prayed 
and listen to how the resurrection shaped their prayer. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined them to, to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now we could, but we won't enter into discussions of miracles and tongues and rooms shaking and whatnot. But the earliest disciples prayed in the confidence that Jesus, though they could not any longer see him, was on his throne and had the power to equip them for everything they needed in order to serve him how he was calling them to serve him. And so I want to urge you to pray in the same manner. Jesus Christ is on his throne. Spring is here, and we can pray like those things are true because they are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we serve a risen Lord who, unlike every other wise man and sage and prophet and founder of every religious movement, came to us to be Emmanuel, God with us. And unlike all others, conquered death by defeating it and being raised after having died. Lord, there are mysteries and truths that are so big that it's hard for us to feel the reality of them. We think even about our place in the universe and the many billions of galaxies and it's hard for us to actually feel the reality of the immensity of what's around us. And it's hard for us to feel the reality of the immensity of the living God and your plan of redemption. So give us confidence, give us faith, and I pray that you would bless this church in their prayers together in the seasons to come. And we pray in Christ's name.